He didn't talk about his service. I didn't know until recently that he even served in, in World War II, let alone what he did in the war. My name is Travis Zimmerman, and you're listening to Decoded, untold stories of Native veterans from Minnesota who helped win World War II. Lex Porter was one of those veterans, an Ojibwe-speaking code talker from Grand Portage and a member of the Fond du Lac Band. So what did you think when you first heard that they wanted to honor your grandfather, especially for something that you really didn't know about? I, I, I was surprised. This is his grandson, Freedom Porter. I, I wanted to know if they got it right, <laughs> right first, if it was, if, there was, if, he, if it was the right person. That was actually my, my grandpa who, who was going to be recognized. We were also surprised. And then it, it started sinking in, and the shock was replaced with pride, something that we were all very, very proud of. Code talkers used native languages to encrypt battlefield messages for the United States military. I've been interested in learning more about them for a long time. For one thing, I'm from a military family. My dad and my uncle served in various branches of the military. My dad's uncle served in World War II, and all his brothers fought in Vietnam. I enlisted in 1987 and was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. I was able to get my degree in history thanks to the GI Bill. Currently, I'm the site manager at the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post, which is run by the Minnesota Historical Society. About 15 years ago, the Smithsonian was doing a traveling exhibit on code talkers, and they asked me to look into Dakota and Ojibwe veterans who might have been code talkers. I learned about a Dakota man from Lower Sioux named Reuben St. Clair, and I found out about a few others, but I ran into a roadblock. I learned that most of the men who had been sworn to secrecy during the war kept those secrets as long as they lived. Lex Porter did. He would say he was, I was just a radio man. And he was. He just didn't say what the messages were he delivered. <laughs> and in what language they might have mm -hmm. been in, huh? <laughs> yeah. In this program, you'll hear more about Lex Porter and Reuben St. Clair. But there are hundreds, maybe thousands of others we may never know about. The World War II Code Talker program was declassified in 1968. By the 1970s, authors started writing books about Navajo, or Diné speakers, whom the Marines recruited for the Pacific Theater. But it was only this century that the public learned how massive the contribution really was. And part of what we learned is from a documentary by Tribal Eye Productions called The Language of Victory. Here is an excerpt. In the year 2000, Congress passed the first legislation to honor code talkers when the 420 Navajo code talkers were awarded gold and silver congressional medals. Then, in 2008, Congress passed the Code Talker Recognition Act to acknowledge the other tribes whose languages had also been used as codes and to acknowledge the dedication and valor of Native American code talkers as well as to honor the incomparable contribution they made to our nation's freedom. The first Native code talkers fought in World War I. 
they used Choctaw to transmit radio messages from the battlefield in France. In World War II, the Marines developed a program using Navajo code talkers for communicating secrets in the fight against Japan. 29 Navajo Marines invented the code. Some of them were asked to go back to the reservation and find more men that were willing to enlist. Albert Smith was one of those recruits. We didn't have a term for uh, hand grenade, so we developed that and called it potato. And uh, when we were talking about the planes, in our code, we'd be talking about the birds. And if we were talking about the ships, we'd be talking about the fishes. I said we were using the term ironfish when we were to using torpedoes. See, it was a code, but it was the language and then the code, so that even if you spoke Navajo, you couldn't decipher the language, the coded language. While the Marines deployed code talkers in the Pacific Theater, the Army had its own program in Europe. Roger Red Elk said he and others from the Comanche Nation completed basic training early in 1941. Then the Army asked them to devise a code from their language. Just for instance, bomber. We have words for airplane, but a bomber, there's no such word for a bomber. So we got together and kicked it around, and we come up with uh, the word in Comanche is noaf, which means pregnant. You know, those bombers carry those big bombs under them like they had big bellies, like a pregnant woman, and that's what we called, called a bomber. We are lucky to have these early first-hand accounts from the men who developed and used codes that have never been broken. Since 2008, when Congress passed the Code Talker Recognition Act, Defense Department investigators have been trying to track down other Code Talkers. They've asked tribes and family members for help. Without documents, it hasn't been easy. And it's been challenging for us in Minnesota to find those stories, too. Decoded is a production of Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So I'm Iekiapiwi, uh, my Washichu name is Darlene St. Clair. Um, we're at my house uh, in Fridley on the Mississippi River. Uh, in Dakota, we call that the Hahawakpa. Yeah, my uncle Ruben, who we'll be talking about today, is uh, most of his life worked as an artist. If you Google Ruben St. Clair, you'll learn about his painting. When I was a child, that's how I knew him. I knew him as an artist. You know, we would go to, we would be at Lower Sioux visiting, and I could just sit and watch him paint. And the living room was full of essentially his studio. He didn't call it that, but it's where he had all his um, materials and his paints, and he would be in there painting, and I could watch him paint. The American Indian Film Gallery at the University of Arizona 
has a 1979 interview with Reuben St. Clair. And uh, we are of the Dawakantua uh, Sioux tribe. Uh, we don't like the name Sioux because that's a French word meaning a snake in the grass. I guess the French called the Sioux that by because he snuck through the grass like a snake. <laughs> it wasn't, it didn't sound that bad, but anyway, the, we like to be called Dakotas, which we are. We are the Udewakantuansu. It is clear from that interview that Reuben St. Clair was a culture keeper. You have some um, artifacts lying here, Reuben. Yes, I do. He probably shows the interviewer a peace pipe, a tomahawk, tomahawk and a breastplate. He also talks about his traditional lifestyle. Of course, I do a little fishing yet. I'm 72 years old now, but I I still go out hunting and I I fish and like that. And every year I get my gear. Mostly, though, he talked about painting. Now everything is Indian. And I can make Indian paintings and sell them just... That's all I do is all Indian sceneries or paintings and buffalo and things like that. The sacred buffalo, which goes very good. Many Native people started seeing that things that they created might actually be kind of a cottage industry where you could sell things to tourists. This is Reuben St. Clair's niece, Darlene. A lot of what he uh, painted was for sale to tourists, although he did paint things um, in the region as well. And I have quite a few uh, pieces of uh, his work, my, my dad. Had. Even when Reuben St. Clair talked about World War II, the point was painting. He used to trade cigarettes for painting lessons. After the war, I was stationed in uh, Leipzig, Germany. And uh, there I uh, took lessons from some of the German painters. I used to go to their homes and i take them a package of cigarettes and then I learned a lot from the German painters because I was doing a lot of things wrong. But Darlene St. Clair said people who knew him better knew more about what happened during World War II. One of those people who knew him best was Darlene's father, Henry St. Clair. Henry and Reuben were raised in the same house. My dad knew him really, really well. It was not just like the typical uncle relationship that we might, where you see them now and again, but this person was more like another father. Before he died, Darlene's father wrote down a kind of timeline of Reuben's life. Darlene read us parts of that timeline. He was a corporal in the U.S. Army and served in World War II in um, the 7th Armored Division under General Patton. Reuben St. Clair was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he helped liberate Paris. He was injured when a tank he was riding in was shot out from under him. His bad leg plagued him the rest of his life. At this time, the U.S. Air Force was in charge of air fighting. The Air Force sent out cubs to spot the enemy soldiers. They were looking for heavy artillery. Uh, Reuben um, was also chosen to view the conditions of the prison camps that held Jewish and Polish prisoners. So he liberated uh, concentration camp. And he was also active as a code talker. He used Dakota language to communicate with other Dakota speakers while in Germany and France. Late in the war, the Air Force asked Reuben to fly reconnaissance missions that helped to end the war. And that's really all Darlene knows about her uncle's service. 
There may have been other code talkers from the Lower Sioux community, and we know of at least one Lakota speaker from Rosebud, but there were likely many more. The Dakota language is part of a larger shared language. It's a dialect. So people of the Ocheti Shakoni or the Seven Council Fires speak the different dialects of the same language. So a Dakota speaker could talk to a Lakota speaker and they can understand each other, even though dialectically there are, there are real differences and there's differences in words that you would use, but it's, it's generally understandable between a Lakota and a Dakota speaker. And because the Ocheti Shakoni is pretty large as a confederation of people, um, my guess is that my uncle could talk to other soldiers that spoke any of those related dialects. This is a way that, you, that they could communicate information that they did not want to fall into other hands, um, and it could be done effectively and accurately um, using native languages. What you're gathering, what you're seeing, they really wanted to make sure that that information was shared accurately but was protected as well. And I think uh, using Dakota language was a way that my uncle could contribute something uh, special to the military effort. And so I think that we don't even know all of the code talkers that are out there because I would imagine once they figured out that this person spoke this language and somebody else understood that language, they took advantage of that. So I think the, the numbers of actual code talkers, I don't think we even know. It would only be the stories of those veterans of what they shared. And I don't know that they always shared this. Darlene said when she was growing up, she didn't know anything about code talkers, let alone her family connection. Her father told her about it after her uncle died in 1985. By then, President Reagan had recognized the Navajo code talkers. Darlene's dad even bought an early Navajo code talker G.I. Joe, complete with rifle, radio, and Marine Corps insignia. There's still, there are still many, many Native people who serve in the military. And I, I know that that's sometimes, for my students, because I'm a teacher, for my students, they ask, like, why would people join the military when there's just so many incidences of the federal government acting in ways that are hostile, even genocidal, towards Native people? My uncle, oh, he definitely saw racism in the military. The Native people all kind of were called chief. If you were native, you just kind of got, it's like people didn't bother to like get to know you. You just kind of had this label and they would refer to you as, hey chief, to go ahead and do this or whatever. So that was pretty common. My experience of, of the people in my circle and my family that were in the military is they were serving in the military because they were defending this land. This land that we're on is Dakota land. This is Minnesota Makoche. They're defending their homelands more than they're defending everything that the U.S. stands for. Because Minnesota had code talkers, we were eligible for a traveling exhibit from the National Museum of the American Indian called Native Words, Native Warriors. To open the exhibit, we had an honoring ceremony for Reuben St. Clair 
and his family. After the Smithsonian exhibit, the Department of Defense kept up its investigation to identify more code talkers. Then on November 20th, 2013, Speaker of the House John Boehner presided over a Congressional Gold Medal Ceremony. They say every medal tells a story, but by adding these men to such lofty ranks, we also mean to add their story. Uh, one worth honoring today, one worth retelling every day. And thank you all for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, Please stand for the presentation of the colors by the United States Army. By 2013, only a handful of code talkers were alive to receive their medals in person. But for the occasion, Emancipation Hall was full of tribal representatives and family members. Freedom Porter was at the 2013 ceremony because his grandfather, Lex Porter, was a code talker. Lex Porter's brother and sister were there along with their children, Freedom's cousins, and the chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, where Lex Porter was a member. So there were other code talkers being represented from other tribes during this ceremony. It was all. It was from. It was from all all, all throughout the country. The ones who were still alive. I um, actually went. Mm -hmm. There was a handful of really old men who were, who were, who were there who actually got their, their medals in person. And then there was families like, like us, whose um, who's veteran was no longer, no longer with us. Leaders of the House and Senate spoke about how important the code talkers were to the Allied victory in World War II. Then they all rose to shake hands with the leaders of 33 tribal nations. Crow Creek Sioux Tribe, Crow Nation, Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes of Montana, Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin, Hopi Tribe. There was one who gave a really touching, touching speech, and I think it was, was um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It's the part that really resonated with me, was that these the code talkers, those those young men who went to World War II to con to fight, they swore a lifetime to secrecy, and they never told our story, and that it was time that we that we tell our story now. For their narrative is an essential piece of our narrative. Their journey is our journey, and as demonstrated by our code talkers, our nation's future is built on their contributions to our history. The medal says the um, Lake Superior Band of Fond du Lac Chippewa. It's a code talker. The front design is of a Native American male. Um, radio operator um, symbolizing the code talker. And the back was part of this. The back is the Fond du Lac, the Fond du Lac emblem. Do you know who the artist was that yeah. ended up designing um, the medal? You may know him. Um, Jeff Savage, I think Jeff that? Savage, yeah. yeah. That yeah. Freedom and I met at his house in Baxter, Minnesota. Freedom is from Grand Portage, just like me. And now he works for the Mille Lacs Band as a drug and alcohol counselor. And he's raising two young daughters. 
My daughter takes us to school every Veterans Day. When we first got this, she called it the big quarter. She understands now what it is, but the name stuck. It's time to take the big quarter to show my friends, is what she says every Veterans Day. Lex is my paternal, my paternal grandfather. He passed away when I was about 11 or 12. So I don't remember much. You know, he was always grandpa. The last memory I have of him, my sister and I had, were in Mille Lacs for, for, our, for our summer break that year. And I ran into him at the Mille Lacs powwow. And that was the last time I saw him alive. And I think that's um, a good way to remember, remember, remember someone. From what I've learned about him from my uncles, he, he wanted to preserve our language, um, our histories, our stories. I don't remember much about what, what he did to, to, as far as preservation, but I remember the, the stories he would try to teach me and how he would try to talk with Jibwe to me. So I, I knew it was important. I knew he was trying to, he was trying to teach. Decoded is a production of Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. My name is Travis Zimmerman, and you're listening to Decoded, untold stories of Native veterans from Minnesota who helped win World War II. Reuben St. Clair and Lex Porter grew up in different Native nations. Reuben St. Clair served in Europe. Lex Porter served in Japan. He served in the Pacific Theater, uh, the U.S. Army. He enlisted December 8th. It was right after Pearl Harbor, along with most, if not all of um, the male members of the community. He served for the duration, the duration of World War II. Neither man talked much about their experience as code talkers. We can only imagine what language they used or invented, who they worked with, and the risks they took. Only now are we beginning to understand and appreciate the magnitude of their contributions. The irony is that the government that once tried to destroy their culture and language later deployed it to win a war. There is a million reasons why for Native people having our languages is critical to our, not just our identity, but I would argue our survival. But I think this is one example of how native languages can benefit the United States. Today's U.S. military will credit the Code Talker program for helping the allies, if not the reason why the allies won World War II. But it's not something our history has recorded. It's not mainstream. That's why it's important to me. I want more people to take pride in knowing what their ancestors did in World War II. So much could have went wrong that didn't. And if someone like my grandpa or someone else's grandpa it can be credited for that, for what they did because of a language that's dying, you know, maybe it'll inspire people to learn it, to keep our language alive another generation or two.
it's important. Yeah, I think it's a really important story. And to me, just the irony of it all that when kids were sent to boarding schools, they were punished for speaking their language, right? And so, like, language was literally beaten out of a whole generation of people that still held on to that language, and those languages ended up helping win the war. Some of these languages are endangered languages. They're losing fluent speakers, and that's what makes them endangered. So I think revitalization efforts for languages right now are really important, and that's why this story is important to tell to and that's what I always think it's such a fascinating story because just the irony of it all that, you know, native languages were being destroyed and yet they're the ones that helped win World War II. Dakota's my dad's first language. Dakota was Reuben's first language. I am the first generation to have English as my first language. So I've done the hard work of trying to learn Dakota I'm imperfect, I'm still a language learner, but it's critically important. English is so dominant in the United States that even if you're trying to share your, lang your home language, your heritage language with your children, the, they get so many social messages that that language doesn't matter and English is the only thing that matters. So we can do some things societally to encourage multilingualism for people who immigrate to the United States, encourage, encourage those children to hold on to those languages. It's important to have this linguistic diversity. This is a, a paradigm shift that we'd need to make in the United States away from being monolingual. As we think about these code talkers and their unique contribution to America's history, we might wonder what would have been lost if these tribal languages had died, if tenacious native peoples hadn't struggled to preserve and pass on their spoken words. And who knows, American Indian people may be called upon again to defend our nation and use their words in the language of victory. Let's sing some Indian song here. Yeah. During World War I, our people were not recognized as U.S. citizens. So why the hell would they give their lives to a country that didn't see them as people? It, they were still treated bad, so why the hell, why, why? And it was a really simple answer. They said, because this is still home. By now, it's well known that Native people joined the military in greater numbers than any other ethnic group in the United States. Some say because it's a decent career path, especially given the discrimination that Indigenous people still face in this country. Others say that it goes back to the boarding school era, which were run more like boot camps than educational institutions. But we say 
because we know that we join the military because we want to protect our land. This land has been our home before it became the United States and will always and forever be native land. Decoded is a production of Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.